This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. If a generative AI application could actually be the, the voice and the brains behind the, the box that you talk into when you're going through the drive-through, that's a pretty big deal. And, and we can do that. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking to John Nordmark, co-founder and CEO of digital innovation platform, Iterate AI. Welcome, John. Hello, Bob. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you built one of the early e-commerce darlings, ebags.com, back in the, oh my God, 1998, uh, before some of our listeners were even born. And what learnings uh, from back then apply today as we talk about generative AI? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, I'd say the, the very biggest takeaway is kind of big picture. It's that uh, you got to really pay attention to what's changing in the environment. You know, today it's the generative AI. Uh, but back then it was just a brand new channel of distribution. I I uh, was working at Samsonite at the time and I met with the CEO. I uh, tried to get him to do uh, an e-commerce website. This was in 1997. Uh, he didn't want to do it. He lost his job two weeks later, so I figured out why. But then a new CEO came in and I tried to get him to do it. And he told me after 45 minutes that, John, uh, I have email and I guarantee you no one will ever buy a bag through an email. And uh, that was what caused me to leave Samsung and start uh, ebags.com. But, you know, he just wasn't paying attention to the new channels. The the com- He wouldn't let the company do it. And so you got to watch through the channels distribution, changing business models, um, the efficiencies gained through digital. That's why uh, I started eBags, and uh, but then after it got going, what I learned about then was the value of experimentation. Uh, I okay, learned that's a that big I word. Really, wait, 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 wait. What uh, does yeah. that mean to us? The value of experimentation. Other people, yes. Yeah, well, you know, uh, eBags lived because we became an experimenter. There was a, and we we were losing a million dollars a month, uh, and with no access to new capital back in the beginning of the dot bomb. And we figured out we had to get profitable really, really fast and live on the money we had, or we would die. Everyone would lose their jobs. So an engineer came to me uh, one night and he said, John, I think I figured out how we could live. And I was like, well, I'm all ears. Like, tell me. And uh, his name was Val, Val Augustino. He went home. I mean, he told me that if we built an AB split test platform, he thinks we could live. This was in 1990, beginning of the year 2000, basically. And um, I asked him what he meant by that. He said, you know, because I'm a marketer, when you mail, uh, you can do a piece of mail to someone with one headline and then another piece of mail to with a different headline to someone else, A-B splitting in the old-fashioned advertising world. He said, what if we could do that online? And I asked him, well, what do you mean? Could we do that? He said, I think we could. And I said, how? He said, if you give me three weeks, I think I could build it. So I said, go home, build it. Don't come back till it's done. He did it. And then we became an experimentation machine. We basically ran probably a thousand experiments, one after another. Uh, But this is seven years before we started, seven years before the term even showed up in Wikipedia. 
but it's because we built our own capability and we tested everything, you know, looks and feels, layouts, uh, colors of buttons, everything. And what I learned in that was uh, I'm only right half the time because we would run little experiments on ourselves. Like we'd make bets, you know, like uh, gentlemen bets on which would win. And I mean, I learned like nobody can predict the consumer behavior. Um, you know, an experiment's the best way to do it. So I became a huge fan of experimentation, not because of a theory, but because I watched what it did to iterate. We, I mean, to Ebacks, excuse me. We, we moved our uh, conversion rate from 0.7% on a daily basis, not on a month, but up to about se- uh, over uh, close to 7%. Wow. That's in a, you know, yeah, just over a period of experiments. And Nielsen recognized us in 2007 as one of the top 15 converting websites in the, in the world. And it was because of that. Well, so then continuing the story, uh, how did a guy <laughs> from Colorado meet a guy from Ukraine and end up finding another software business to start? Oh, well, you know, Ebacks, yeah, it's true. It's a retailer, but it was also a, a software company. And that's where I kind of gained a, a lot of digital uh, and working with people that build digital. But uh, after eBags, I was invited to be on the board of directors of a Ukrainian um, Techstars. It was a an accelerator um, based in Kiev, and um, I I did that for two years. And when I went over there, I probably went over there quarterly for a couple of days at a time. But I met a guy named Brian Satyanathan, and he happened to come out of Apple. He worked in Secret Products, which is their he was he owns patents on the very first iPhone. Like he was part of that little tiny team that built the first iPhone. But I met him there because he was also a board member. Uh, we were brought by the same person who has a who's a Russian, actually, uh, uh, but loves Ukraine. And and we we looked at like four hundred different companies together. Uh, every every core every six months. Uh, that's what they put through there. And then we would pick ten. Tend to work on, you know, every six months, um, and but by talking with my with this guy Brian just about where the world was going, we we learned from watching all these entrepreneurs from Eastern Europe that had no money, like a lot of them still lived at home with their mom and dad, and they were from all over Russia, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Ukraine, wherever. We learned that they were building companies off Amazon's cloud in the year 2011. So they didn't need to buy uh, servers up front like I had to do, you know, with e-bags in the bidding. So they were launching off Amazon, AWS, and then they were using code libraries, you know, open source code. So that's free. And and building on top of that, we could deploy SaaS models. And they were develop- They were founders who were actually technical. And that's when we realized, oh my gosh, the world is flat. The world, you know, an entrepreneur no longer needs capital to start a business. You just need the right mindset and brains. So we said the barrier to entry to starting a company is now brains, not capital. And and because of that, that was kind of the the thesis that we used or the philosophy we used to start Iterate, and which what, I do today. And what's its big mission to do then? It, what's Iterate do? Well, what it's sort of morphed into, we we put a .ai at the end of our name in 2017. And the reason we did that was, you know, we could see that AI was going to be big. Um, we started in 2013, but we changed it to .ai in, in 2017. 
And what we are now is a software platform that helps uh, big enterprise build AI solutions. It's a low-code AI platform. That's what we call it. It's way more than drag and drop. It's super advanced. And 90% of our revenues come from that platform. We do a lot for retailers like Cult of Beauty, um, Amper Chef, Circle K. Uh, the other 10% comes from advisory services around AI, IoT, just helping helping big companies, you know, strategy teams, digital teams map out and think through, you know, their journey in AI and IoT. Well, That's how we started really. It was that services side, but we built the platform after getting going. So I... I firmly believe that generative AI is going to start Skynet any day now, and we're all going to be at war, but hopefully I'll be dead by then. I mean, it's a little disconcerting when the people that created it are saying, holy crap, it's Pandora's box. Uh, that's not, uh, and I must get, I don't know, 20 or 30 emails a day about somebody's doing, you know, AI. And that's, that's almost like saying, you know, I have a store. It's so broad that, um, yeah, you can use ChatGPT to do all kinds of things, but when it really gets down to it, um, what kind of pain points is generative AI able to help retailers with? And you know, what kind of gaps need to be filled by that? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm with you, by the way, on uh, the unknowns around AI. <laughs> see, that the guys that see it, are the ones who are just as scared as I am. So yeah, I mean, we're trying to use it to make the world a better place, which is kind of what your question is uh, asking, and and obviously that's what we want to do. So, I think a, a big area is in around staffing. You know, like a lot of retailers today have trouble uh, hiring people, and uh, that could be for the call center. Uh, if you're a, a quick serve restaurant, it could be for, you know, you're just missing one person. And if, if a generative AI application could actually be the, the voice and the brains behind the, the box that you talk into when you're going through the drive-thru, that's a pretty big deal. And, and we can do that. Um, and, and then another thing you can do with generative AI is, is use the license plate to recognize uh, who's coming into a drive-thru, like at a quick serve restaurant or at a gas station, like a convenience store. And then use that to actually activate the pump. It can it can turn on the app in a person's phone, turn that into the payment solution. So you don't even need to bring out your credit card, kind of turn it turn your phone into a Starbucks card, but in a drive-through restaurant or you know, or in a convenience store. Uh, so so anyway, it helps it could help with staffing. Um, it can also just, you know, I look at it as a way to kind of augment a human being's brain. So if, if you're thinking about a person who might be working in a, in a retail uh, uh, facility, uh, they got a lot to do. And uh, we've actually uh, worked with a retailer to, to build a uh, to-do list, basically a dynamic to-do list, which the cameras are watching. We use their existing cameras to watch everything going on in the store, and it can then create to-do lists on the fly. And, you know, let's say... And a good example is 10 people walked in the bathroom, you know, can you go back there and just see if it's clean? And that can all be done through, you know, generative AI applications. You can do it with inventory, a number of things. Training too, which which you're a big trader, uh, but there are ways, uh, right? <laughs> uh, generative AI can help with that. If you have remote locations or you want to create a, a, 
an application that trains a person on specific specific needs of a certain retailer, um, you can do that through a, a private large language model. Um, so those are a few applications. Yeah, and I think that it's going to be the big ones that uh, you know the WalMarts and the Targets of the world that have the money to burn and try experiments and all of these in Malta <laughs> and figure out you know what works. I know it was interesting with Walmart when I was uh, at NRF many years ago, and um, you know I think it was Amazon was touting their just walk out service and right. also their ability for their robots to be able to do inventory. And eventually yeah. Walmart said, you know, all we have to do is take a picture of what a stock shelf looks like and then have a te- have the cameras all go off every 30 minutes, take a picture, match it up, build the pick list, and then go through it at much less money because the cameras are all Wi-Fi enabled. But it still comes down to um, having as much data as you can in the system, right? Isn't that kind of the whole point that, um, you yeah. know, like I use HubSpot. And HubSpot has got so much information about people that have come in. And, and you think, like, couldn't you just go through and, and look at all this and, and show me people? But it still comes down to training an algorithm, right? That's, that's kind of it. And so when you're dealing with a retailer, how do you go about even deciding? I mean, like, you know, we really need, we really need a, a thing that reads people's license plates and matches it to the loyalty card. <laughs> turn on the pumps. Like, that's... That's pretty advanced. So, how do you? But yet, as a customer, that's really a a, a, um, a pain point probably that you have solved because if I've got two or three kids or my dogs and it's raining and any number of things, uh, you can make it less friction. That's ultimately where we're going for everybody, right? So, what would be some of those um, ways how it might help? How do you figure that out? How do we? <laughs> you know. Um... I, I think it just comes down to um, well, one way is just um, keeping an open mind and um, keeping your eyes out, watching what other people are doing. Because I tend to believe um, uh, innovation isn't really about like uh, you know some genius going and sitting in a corner coming up with an idea all by herself or himself. It's really about usually it's about connecting dots. And it's about uh, keeping an open mind. And um, so, what what we what I've watched companies do successfully is um, uh, one one thing we do is what we call uh, tours of the possible. And it's you, you come up with ideas about how you could remove friction, let's say, from a shopping experience or whatever, and then you just come up with theses or. or hypotheses on how to do that. And then you go look for all the startups in the world. You know, there are millions of them. Uh, and, and you look at ways that they're trying to solve the problem. And kind of to your example with Walmart on, on you know, taking a picture of the inventory and using the cameras in to look at the picture and uh, use that data to determine if you're out of stock or in stock. Uh, a lot of times innovations like good ones are just nuances of some other idea. You know, they're Again, just connecting other dots, bringing one other dot into the scenario. And so what we'll a lot of times do is just look at ideas that other people are bringing forward. Sometimes they're ones you want to work, move forward with yourself, but then sometimes they kind of spark another idea. And and so that's kind of the tour of the possible way. And another way, um, we have this um, um, kind of like idea collection capability where what we, we like to do is encourage companies to ask their employees what 
how do we improve your job? How do we make it easier? How do we make life more fun when you come to work? And ask them to um, contribute ideas. And uh, there was one we did with one major retailer around IoT, and I think 140 some ideas came in. And 10 of them were, a number of them were kind of the same, you know, little nuances on each one, but they, they ended up with uh, 10 ideas that they wanted to pursue looking at. And and again, those could come from just, you know, the associate working in a store. It could come from a chief digital officer. But it's important also to not, I, I think, not look at who's contributing the idea so you don't bias the value of the idea itself. Because a lot of times, they, you know, some brand new person may have a great idea. And, you and know, I didn't come up with it, so it's crap because I'm paid yeah. the EVP. So there, sorry. There's a lot of that, isn't there? <laughs> And, and, it, and it's, it's sad because you can also you could argue both sides of it, right? It's like, mm-hmm. well, you should know that one could certainly say that you that's what you're paid to do. However, the person who is most yeah. seeing the customer is person at the front, but we don't usually give them the voice because right. well, you're just a part timer. What would you know? And uh, and they may not be as willing to say, hey, because they don't know what you're going to do. They might end up saying, we know our stuff, and who knows how many ideas are being lost at your company right now because you're not even asking how's that so you know when, go when i started my career bob I, I love that you just said that like um giving everyone a voice when i started my career i i took a job at sears that was my very first job out of college uh <laughs> it was uh i was in their management training program they hadn't hired a college student for 15 years i think it was and we, i was part of the first group they brought in and an unbelievable um, process for hiring. Yeah, I want to stop just for a second because most yeah. people, my dad worked for Sears, put himself through Divinity School uh, back in Chicago. And, oh, wow. Uh, a lot of people would either not know the name or would poo-poo it like a failed brand. Yeah. Sears should have been Amazon, for those of you who yeah. don't realize it. Sears was the bomb. They are, are, were an entrepreneurial company, started off with a railroad engineer who basically sold watches, railroad watches to people up and down the line and then grew it. So they are yeah. the standard for a lot yeah. of us until probably the early 80s when they went to the softer side of Sears and pretty much forgot who their customer was and, and a lot of yeah. other things happened. But just to go back for you, John, for some of us who may not have understood, that was a big honor to be working for that company. That would have been uh, the top of the mark. Wouldn't you agree? I, it was it was an amazing company. I mean, really, you could almost credit them with inventing the first uh, internet website, which was a catalog, right? <laughs> I mean, they were the inventor of the paper catalog, and and it was that huge catalog that tried to be what the internet kind of became. Uh, the internet, like it, and Amazon probably considered something like the Sears catalog what they want as something they wanted to create. But uh, yeah, but kind of to your point, they lost their way. When they brought us in, I'll never forget this. I mean, it was kind of a defining moment in my career. I, I was really excited to get going with them. Um, and in the very first meeting, on the very first day, they stood up there. There were like 30 of us that they hired in the whole country. And they said, um, we just want you all to be quiet. We don't want any ideas, no thoughts from any of you. You just need need to learn our system, and that's what you're here to do. And right there, I swear, that's where I quit. Um, and at least mentally, it took me nine more months. I, I went through their training program, which was actually extremely good. I think it it turned me into much of who I became as a professional. Like it, it led to my 
without going through that, I don't know that Samsonite would have ever hired me, you know, to sell to retailers. Uh, and, and then structure, that right? one, it gave you a structure. You you understood how it all fit structure. together. That's that's what I think so many people miss is everybody kind of wings it, and you're like, well, yeah, you could wing it. You know, you can write yeah. a story however you want it, but no one will read it unless you have a structure to it that we're used to. And so right. I think that's what it does. It doesn't change you as much as is mm-hmm. let you understand that oh, to be heard, this is the way I have to work. Right. Right. And yeah, and. That, that experience was defining for me. You know, that one comment was defining, but then I had many great trainers, you know, going through Sears. I still remember their names, Mr. French, Jerry Epstein, you know, Roberta. Uh, but I, but, you know, in the end, uh, that attitude kind of sucked the wind out of me and I had to leave. And, um, you know, and that I, I got lucky from there on, you know, in my career, but, um, that was that was defining to me, and I think it taught me how to behave later. It's maybe one reason I I believe in listening to people so much. You know, um, anyone can have a good idea percolating. I love that. Yeah. Well, before we continue, we'll continue talking about listening to our uh, both our customers and our our associates as well. And we uh, will take a little break, but we love our loyal listeners. So I'd appreciate if you take just a moment on your favorite platform, just give us a five star review and tell your friends because frankly it's all about doing this for you to be able to help understand how to be a better retailer no matter what size you are and now we'll return after this word from SalesRx online retail sales training presented by you know who hey it's bob again i'm not only your host but also the founder of the SalesRx online retail sales training program how many sales that should have been yours walked out your front doors today You know, with shoppers being more discerning about where and when they shop, you need to convert more lookers to buyers. And SalesRx is the perfect solution to make training memorable. It's bite-sized, it can fit easily into your schedules. Don't tell me you don't have time to train. If you can give them time to take a break, you have time for them to train. Now the training builds from some of the quickest ways to engage shoppers to the most advanced. Everything is planned so you can implement your sales training program with a click of a button. And there's a reason we're on four continents training thousands because SalesRx is scalable. Everybody learns the same new skills that will grow your sales. In fact, 83% of users report a double digit increase in their sales within six months. Wouldn't you like that to be your story? Visit SalesRx to learn more and set up a call with me to see how we can help. That's S-A-L-E-S-R-X.com. Now back to the broadcast. All right, and we are back with John Nordmark, co-founder and CEO of Iterate.ai. Now, before we were starting uh, the break, we were talking about listening to people and how you'd been shut down. So how do you uh, um, how do you bubble up people to be able to have a voice? Because on the one side, as I heard you tell that story about Sears, I was like, I've been that guy that would just say, shut up and learn the system, and then you can ask questions. I don't want to answer questions all day. However, yeah. I also understand that if you're going to be that guy, then it's my way or the highway, which certainly worked in the 70s and 80s. But I don't think it ever felt good for anyone, to your point. And nowadays, we certainly have uh, younger people who expect to have a voice that yeah. you know, on day one, they might ask you why or tell you, no, I don't want to do that. So you know, certainly over your career, what are some ways to help people find a voice without just becoming a free-for-all? 
Because I think it's both yeah. times, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think, uh, number one, like as a leader, so I, at eBags, I was a CEO. Uh, and um, But I was a founder, and I think there's, those are that's a different type of person like it. I was there when it was me and then I was there when it was five people and then I was there when it was, you know, 150 people. And, uh, one thing that I tried to do was go to coffee every week with at least three people. We would go to Starbucks, um, and just sit and chat. And it could, and I always asked, uh, three questions or, uh, two questions. Uh, tell me three things you like about your job or the company, you know, three things that are going well that you really like. And three things that if you could wave that magic wand and change it, you'd do it. And, and, uh, you know, and, and when they give you the things that they don't like, you just have to be conscious that you can't scold them. You can't, uh, Correct. hold it against them. And I think that's really, really important, you know, as a, a leader to do that. But one of the things that happened to me, I one one that stand out to me was we when we went through the dot bomb, we had to lay off twenty five percent of our people. This was in the year two thousand, and uh, it was the most gut wrenching thing for me because uh, up to this point, I thought I was this rich guy, like we'd raised money at one hundred and forty two million dollar valuation, and I owned a pretty big chunk of that, and you know, but it's all paper. That's one thing non entrepreneurs and actually first time entrepreneurs don't realize, like. So many of the numbers you read, they're just kind of like fake numbers because they're they're just paper, you know. Until someone actually hands you that buys a company or hands you the check, it's it's paper. You have to be really careful about uh, what you do with the information that you don't want to hear. Uh, as a person who you know is really close to the company as a founder, let's say, or you know, or a CEO, but especially as a founder. And, uh, but anyway, I, I remember one week I went out with three men and, you know, in different parts of the company and I didn't invite anyone from an intern to a software developer to the head of merchandising or whatever. It was all one-to-one personal connection. And, uh, three men told me that they loved working at eBags, but they're getting a lot of pressure at home because we just cut our benefits because we had to cut 25% of our people. Um, you know, and part of cutting, you have to cut anywhere. So we were, we cut benefits and three people told me they're going to have to leave the job because they're getting pressure at home and they need better benefits. And I remember after the third one said that I went back straight into our CFO's office and said, we got to add those back or we're going to start losing really important people. And, um, and so that's one way to collect information. Another way is to do it through technology, like we talked about a little bit ago, you know, uh, kind of an entrepreneurship program, a virtual um, idea box or virtual complaint box or whatever you want to call it. But I, I do think you just want to make it explicitly clear that you are open to ideas. And and that can mean, you know, just being proactive about going and listening to people. Well, and, and in and my case, it would be biting your tongue. <laughs> you ask the question, you don't have the right to respond, really, and then taking action. Yeah. So having a notepad. I think yeah. Oprah Winfrey said it uh, in a in an interview once that um, the most important thing people want is to be uh, to be heard and to be seen, and that's yeah. really all it is, right? So the, you've asked my opinion, I've given it to you, then that's that's enough. It's not like, and I better see action in thirty days. That's not the same thing. It's like you're asking. Yeah. 
you're taking pause to collect it. And then, yeah, yeah, when things do change, you can certainly write back and say, hey, that idea you had three years ago, we finally did it. But but yeah. it's not a to-do list like, oh, my God, the whole place is burning. So that's where being right. a founder and executive is being able to say, you know, this is not as important as that is because, you know, when you see these undercover boss shows and they're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. And I always think, how clueless are you? You went on TV to find out what your job was. Just get out there. And that's yeah. one of the things I think in retail, you know, you yeah. get the store visit with some mucky muck who would come through and, oh, yes, and would never talk to the associates. They would be talking to the buyers and the senior people. Yeah. And that felt like crap to be on the floor because you, you felt wow. like you're being judged or or you're not part of the party. You're not with the cool kids. I don't think that would I don't think that would exist uh, today. I think people want to all want to be noticed and valued and um we we're running out of time and i have so many questions for you but i know one of the things that you talk about is managing inventory affection efficiently so yeah. how can that be helped because everybody's coming out of supply chain with uh covid and we hear that you know everything is better but it's still kind of broken and uh the yeah. idea of everything having just in time inventory was supposed to be the answer and then we found out well maybe that's not the answer so well, in a few of the cases that we've been involved with, kind of related to AI again, are uh, using existing cameras. I think what's what's really interesting is if you can build an AI capability that can operate through your existing infrastructure, so your existing, let's say, security cameras, and it can keep an eye on, um, uh, using an example of the convenience store again, uh, the hot dogs on the little rollers, you know, uh, and count them periodically, and then let the let the uh, oh. the associate know that you know we're down to two. You better put a couple more on the the rollers, uh, or or you know when as it's counting things, also relaying that information back to the home office. Um, that works, and we've also been able to um, you know do the same thing with cups, you know at a at like a coffee counter at. at um, with um, beer uh, containers, stuff like that. Uh, but but then, um, you know, if you can also um, enable, well, be able to use or get an AI that uses um, edge inferences, you know, then you can keep all that information private. If you can connect it to the, um, the weather, in an area, we've been able to produce some forecasts that are pretty interesting. Um, by uh, you know, we can predict consumption based on weather for certain types of products, uh, as long as you can get like a ten-day read on the how far out the weather is going to change. You can you know stock up more in stores or or stock down a little bit more in stores. So AI is useful in all of those. Functions. And, you know, that's part of it as well, that the more data points, that's why I keep going back to all of you yeah, who are listening, data. the more data points you have in your system, the better. Just having an email and a first name, yeah, you can personalize it. Not really. You're just saying an email with a field. That's not personal. But if you could actually, I mean, to me, the gold standard is um, if you knew me as the retail doc and you could actually say, hey, Bob, you know, as a retail consultant in upstate New York, you know, one of your challenges is this. And one thing we found is this, and if it was spot on to me, it would be amazing. But right now we're still kind of a spray and, and pray that uh, something lands. So the more I think we can go through and do A-B testing and go, this works, and then teach that AI to do something, 
um, the better. So, you know, technology is, is continuing to change. Uh, I have one more question after this, but, you know, how fast is AI changing? And what do you think we can expect in the future besides Skynet? I'm just saying. I want to make sure I'm on the record for that because I called it. All right. Yeah. Well, and you know, generative AI is uh, has just exploded. So it was just AI up until November 2022, and I think that in November, a year ago approximately, it just um, the world changed, and that's when GPT. I uh, had this layer placed on top of it, a user interface called ChatGPT. And that let everyday people, you know, non-technologists come in and interact with AI for the very first time. And that changed everything. And, you know, in a period of months, we went from from um, uh, chat or GPT-3 to 3.5, then to uh, GPT-4. And what they did is they trained the, the models on, it grew from, in the very beginning, you know, in 2018, when the whole idea of GPT or, or LLMs, generative AI, became known. Uh, it moved from training a couple billion models to, you know, GPT-4, which is, I think, you know, in the trillions of parameters. Or, and so that that's what made the, the large language models start thinking like human beings to some extent or kind of having conversations like human beings. Well, and we're, well, all, we're all using it. So we're teaching it even more, yeah. right? That's the whole thing. We're all getting yeah. input into this. And what we're going to see in the future is smaller language models, smaller ones that are made private inside companies. We're already building those for like 15 companies. Uh, but that's so that other people can't access their, their language models, their private language models. We're going to see costs continue to come down. So GPUs right now, like in 2022, I think it costs $10 million to process a million, what they call, or a billion inferences. That'll go down, they think, to about $650 by the time um, we hit 2030. So the ability to process data will be a lot cheaper, and it'll be a lot faster because the quality of chips keeps getting better. You know, So you're going to find these chips put into more and more consumer products and I think product companies that sell services are going to become service companies that just happen to sell products. And what I mean by that is uh, products are going to create journeys. They're going to create digital trails and you'll be able to use those to tell people how to use them better or when to replace them or how they can interact with other products. And those are some of the things that are kind of coming, I think. I love it. Well, you know, the title of our podcast (laughs) is Tell Me Something Good About Retail. It's my last question I ask all our guests. So, uh, John, <laughs> tell me something good about retail. Well, people people um, love to shop. There are a lot of great people working in the industry. It's a dynamic industry. It'll only get more dynamic. The, you know, retail is being redefined by the different channels of distribution. You know, those are evolving. And because of the kind of the nature of how tough it is, I think it attracts a lot of really interesting people to work in it. I love that. I love that. That's great. Well, I appreciate you joining us today. And, um, you know, the future is really there for us to just jump into. That's what I take away from you is that you just got to try things. And um, until you actually jump in and do it, you're on the side and you might end up like uh, Samsonite and out pretty quickly because the market is is only getting better. That's why I look at it. Yes, we can either be fearful of future 
before we can take stock in. There's a lot of brilliant people looking how to make this even better. So I appreciate you being one of them, John. And thanks for joining thank us you. today. Yeah, thank you, Bob. And I appreciate you asking me to do this. Thank you. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com. 